0: Welcome to the due diligence podcast. I'm your host Robert Kraft and for more than 10 years with SNN I've been doing interviews with micro management teams at investor conferences globally as well as online. Our SNN live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest and then one can discover more by going to that company website but personally I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on. That's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. My guest on the show today is Ed Richardson, Chairman, CEO, and President of Richardson Electronics. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is R-E-L-L on NASDAQ. Richardson Electronics is a leading global provider of engineered solutions, power grid and microwave tubes and related consumables, power conversion and RF and microwave components, replacement parts, tubes, and service training for diagnostic imaging equipment and customized display solutions. For 75 years, the company has been a provider of power grid and microwave tubes and serves customers in the alternative energy, aviation, broadcast communications, healthcare, industrial, marine, medical, military, scientific, and semiconductor markets. The company's strategy is to provide specialized technical expertise and engineered solutions based on their core engineering and manufacturing capabilities. The company provides solutions and adds value through design and support, system integration, prototype design, and manufacturing, testing, logistics, and aftermarket technical service and repair through its global infrastructure. I've seen Richardson Electronics at a number of conferences over the years, so it was great to get Ed and COO Wendy Diddle on the podcast to discuss the company's 75-year history and Ed's 60-year career with Richardson Electronics, helping investors make sense about the company, why engineered solutions is simple and Richardson's growth opportunities and tailwinds driving those prospects. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Ed Richardson, Chairman, CEO, and President of Richardson Electronics. Welcome back to the Due Diligence series on the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B O B B Y K-K-R-A F T. And joining me today is Ed Richardson. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Richardson Electronics. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is RELL, R-E-L-L on NASDAQ. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Thanks, Robert. I'm doing great.
0: All right. Well, look, I, I've known the name for a while. Um, we were just talking offline about a few colleagues that I know have been following the story. And that's how I was kind of introduced to Richardson Electronics over the years. So, you know, I'm really excited uh, to have you on here so that, you know, I can ask you a few questions myself. Um, you know, hopefully hopefully nothing too crazy that you've heard in the past already. But, um, you know, I want how I start off every interview here is, uh, can can you describe what the company does or describe the company or what it does in that one sentence? And then we'll go from
1: there. <laughs> I think I would, I would use the uh, phrase that we use a lot. And we call um, what we do in concept is engineered solutions. So over the years, and we built a company with oh probably 100 engineers. And companies are always coming to us and saying, we need this particular device, some kind of module. Um, can you design it for us? And we never have enough sense to say no. Um, And I can tell you that we've designed a lot of these products that were a dead end street. They never went anywhere. Um, But on the other hand, there's been a few that have uh, turned into real home runs. And probably the biggest example we'll talk about is um, uh, ultra capacitor modules to replace lead acid batteries, primarily in wind turbines. That whole business is... uh, Amazing growth uh, for us, and green energy has become uh, a very important part of our business. And we'll tell you about that. But this all comes from engineered solutions and you know, are just customers. We have 20,000 customers all over the world. We have 24 foreign subsidiaries. This year is the 75th anniversary of the company, and I've been in it 60 years. So it's taken us it 60 years to get it right.
0: Look, you know, I, I well. Firstly, congratulations. You know, uh, I, I believe when we were talking offline, this is the seventy. It's the seventy fifth year anniversary, right? Yeah, that's what you just said. Um, and it's a family business. Yeah, I think you, you were telling me offline that you've been in it six years. I hate to ask you because I was joking with you that you're probably going to have to tell me the story again because you just told it to me offline. But love to hear how you came into the business, and because that's also ties into what the original thesis for Richardson Electronics was and how it's evolved over the years. So let's start there.
1: Well, in uh, my dad, during World War II, he worked for a company called Majestic Radio. And after World War II, his job was to terminate war assets. So he was primarily uh, selling surplus electronic components. And in 1947, uh, Majestic Radio went bankrupt. And they owed my father some money. And at that time he took electronic components for the money they owed him. And he incorporated his own name. He called it Arthur H. Richardson Incorporated. And we had a little family farm. We had 33 acres in Wayne, Illinois, about 50 miles west of Chicago. And my dad believed that you should be self-sufficient. So we had pigs, chickens, lambs, turkeys, you name it, horses, dogs, We raised all our own food. And dad took a barn, a little red barn that had been used for raising turkeys and cleaned it out and made that the start of his business. He moved all these electronic components into that barn. And on weekends, my brother and I I have an older brother, three years older than I am. We had to work, work for my dad and clean tubes and package tubes and put them in boxes and test them and so forth. And I frankly hated it. I wanted no part of the surplus business. What I did like is I really enjoyed dogs and horses in particular, and um, wanted to go into veterinary medicine my whole life. Uh, Went to a prep school in in Connecticut for a number of years and um, did pretty well in that school. And I was admitted or accepted to both Cornell and Iowa State University. And I chose Iowa State because they were large animals, and I really wanted to end up being a horse vet. Um, So I started in in veterinary medicine school, was there less than a year. Uh, They were on a three-term system, and I got mononucleosis uh, and came home. And they told me not to come back until the fall quarter. And after about two or three weeks, I was healthy. And my dad said, well, you're not going to sit around here. You're going to go to work with me. And I went into Chicago. I thought, oh, God, I don't want to be in the surplus business. And 60 years later, here I am. So It's a great I mean, it's a great story. Was
0: there at any point among, during these 60 years you're like, ah, maybe I should have gone back to veterinary school? I mean, it's a tough business at certain points, electrical components and figuring out yeah. what everybody needs. But it, but at the same time, I can see that as being fun as well.
1: Well, we had some ups and downs, that's for sure, and and, uh, I don't want to get into that part of the history, but we got into an antitrust case, believe it or not. You know, I was told when we got in the business, the tube business wouldn't exist in 10 years that everything was going to be replaced with semiconductors, and to give you some idea, our tube business this year went from $100 to $120 million, and we have more orders than we can fill, so... But at one time, back in the late 80s, the U.S. Department of Justice decided that we had bought too many of these companies and that we were, uh, um, you know, sort of an antitrust area where we were taking over the industry and raising prices and so forth. And we spent three years fighting that and $10 million. And I didn't think we were going to make it. But what it did do was to make us diversify into a lot of other businesses. Absolutely. So as you said,
0: you know, the, the kind of the original problem, you know, back 75 years ago was taking, you know, all, all of these, uh, basically all this materials that was from World War II and basically repurposing it. So how would you say that idea, that original idea has evolved over the years and to where you are today?
1: Well, the first thing we did is, you know, my father taught me that Uh, Although he had basically was was selling to other surplus dealers um, that there were users out there that we could sell. And we started with the broadcast industry was the first uh, 10,000 radio and TV stations in the United States alone. And they all were using transmitting tubes to broadcast their audio or video signals. So we started out, we ended first with a line from a company called Darien. The line of products was called IMAC with transmitting tubes. And I started calling on radio and TV stations uh, to sell those tubes. And the uh, um, it worked. We uh, actually got an award called the Golden Tetrode for the number of tubes we sold the first year. Um, and then we just went from there. We went from uh, broadcast to Airlines, railroads, steel mills—they're all using tubes of one kind or another in their systems. And today, we've got twenty thousand customers all over the world, and twenty-four foreign subsidiaries. Actually, sixty percent of our business is outside the United States.
0: Okay, so let, let's let's dive a little deeper into the business itself. You know, as you said, you have over twenty, about twenty thousand customers. 24 foreign subsidiaries. And, you know, we were joking offline again, how, you know, if we wanted to go through every single component of the business, it might take us a, a five hours, but simply put, what would you say is the the core business itself and how you're adding on, how these additional subsidiaries add to what the core aspect of, of Richardson Electronics does, if that makes sense.
1: Well, let's see. First, we have uh, three major companies. There's one called Canvas, and Canvas is pretty easy to understand. They make uh, displays, custom displays, primarily for medical OEMs. So, every one of the displays they design are engineered for a particular OEM, um, and they go into um, healthcare equipment. For instance, we sell to Medtronics, And Medtronics has a system, it's a robotic laser guided surgery that the surgeons use our display to uh, operate their surgical tools. Um, And um, so that's going into a system that's several million dollars and our display is a few thousand dollars, but once you're designed in, it's FDA approved and that business um, goes on for many, many years. We sell a display to Varian Medical, for example, that goes into a linear accelerator for cancer treatment, and we've been selling them that display for over 10 years. So Canvas sells to Medtronics, Varian, Stryker, CareStream, um, all of these medical OEMs. We have a unit in uh, Downish in Germany that does design and assembly work, and we have another unit outside of Boston in Marlborough, Mass., and that business is about this year, finished the year at 35 million. Um, but they have about a $50 million backlog, and we think they'll do about 40 million this year. And that's probably the easiest business to understand. They're all medical grade displays, custom designed for particular OEMs. Then the second business um, we call uh, the healthcare business, and Wendy actually runs the healthcare business. So it's Richardson Healthcare. And a number of years ago, we were looking for, we had sold off the largest business that we had. <clears throat> it was called RFPD. We sold to Arrow uh, for $238 million. And we looked at the business and tried to decide what we could do, uh, what we wanted to do when we grew up. And we decided to get into the CT tubes. The one business that was really going in the tube industry were CT tubes for X ray which in total with the service and OEM business, that business is about a $9 billion market. So we built a $35 million factory within our factory. By the way, this factory is 250,000 square feet, and it's located on 120 acres of the property about 50 miles west of Chicago. So within it, we built this factory to build CT tubes. Um, And we have the capacity, probably the most modern CT factory in the world. We have the capacity to build about a thousand tubes a year. And we started out copying Canon tubes. And we've developed two of their tubes, a 750D and a 750G. And we're now working on Siemens. And Siemens is much larger than Canon, probably 10 times larger than Canon. But the fact of the matter is that we are building less than 300 tubes a year. And of the one business, we're losing about $5 million a year in that business. But we made $15 million last year, even with a $5 million loss in healthcare, And our business was up from $176 million to $226 million on our fiscal year. A year goes um, from June 1 through May. And we're just finishing our um, first quarter of uh, fiscal 23 today, as a matter of fact. And we think this will be another record quarter for us. So um, we're doing quite well. So then within the business, you've got the healthcare piece. And then there's what we call the Power and Microwave Technology Group. And that's the core two business, which is EDG, the Electron Device Group. And as I mentioned, that business went from 100 million last year to about 120 million this year. And uh, we have a tremendous backlog in that business. So to give you some idea, we make magnetron tubes. And probably the uh, uh, most popular application for our magnetron tubes today is making synthetic diamonds. So they use a six kilowatt tube at 2,450 megahertz. And they hit carbon um, with that, and they can build synthetic diamonds up to three carats that are absolutely perfect. They have no fluorescent, they have no inclusions, and the color is perfect. They're actually better than natural diamonds. And that industry has really become popular, particularly in Asia. Um, and so we have, we this one particular tube, we were building about 800 a year, and this year we have orders for 5,000. We can't build them fast enough. Wow. And then we build magnetron tubes that are used in weather radar systems. And our biggest customer there is Garmin. And Garmin's business this year was up about 30%. And we also sell the Honeywell for executive aircraft. Um, so we sell all just about every kind of tube that's made. We, we either manufacture or have exclusive agreements where people make tubes for us. And that total business, as I mentioned, is uh, about 120 million this year. The biggest segment is um, LAM research. So, in this case, we build RF matches and other microwave devices that go into semiconductor wafer fabrication equipment. And our business with LAM is the largest manufacturer of semiconductor wafer fabrication tools. And they sell to people like Intel and Samsung. And that business this year went from 22 million to 27 million. And in this last quarter, we were up to 11 million. Um, And that business is growing as well. Um, And then in the other, we sell all kinds of industrial tubes that are used for induction welding, for laminating plastics and plywoods, uh, CO2 laser cutting. uh, And that all comprises the uh, 120 million. And then we have PMG, which is the Power and Microwave Group. And this is the area with probably the most potential growth. And here um, we designed a tube that goes into um, uh, into wind turbine uh, applications to replace lead acid uh, batteries. So we take a, uh, an ultra capacitor And there are six of them in each module. And then we designed a integrated circuit that goes on top of it. Um, And we have two patents on that particular device. And we started out selling into GE wind turbines. And how we got into this business was years ago we distributed for a company called Maxwell and they made ultra capacitors. And Maxwell was bought by Tesla about five years ago and when Tesla bought them, they took them out of the commercial business. They wanted their production only for their automotive industries. So we were looking for another, we had about a $3 million business in ultra capacitors. And we found a company that was a division of LG in Korea. That's called LS Materials. And we took our $3 million worth of business and wrote an exclusive agreement with them for green energy, primarily wind turbines, but also cellular base stations, anywhere that the ultra capacitor can be used to replace lead acid batteries. Um, and here again, we talked about engineered solutions, a company called Next Era came to us, who's the largest wind turbine operator in the United States. And they asked us if we, they had tried to deal with Maxwell to replace the lead acid batteries in the GE turbines, but um, they went to LS Materials in Korea trying to find another source and, they were referred to us. And so our engineers worked about two years on designing this ultra-capacitor module that we now have a patent on uh, that goes into GE wind turbines. And there are 18 of them in each wind turbine. And the total cost to replace all 18 in the wind turbine is about $10,000. Mm-hmm. So the first year next era gave us an order, they have 10,000 wind turbines in operation and they gave us an order to cover a thousand wind turbines for ten million dollars, uh, the first year. And now all of these companies in that business know each other. So there's a, a list of companies like uh, like Nextera. They're called Invenergy, Grid Renewables, RWE, Enel. They're all buying from us now. There's thirty thousand GE wind turbines in operation in the United States. Ed.
0: I have to ask and this is going to sound rudimentary but how do you keep track of all of it I know it's your job to keep track of all of it but it's a lot let's be let's be real i mean thankfully you got Wendy back there helping you out but I'm, but,
1: but i'm just saying uh, we we have about 450 employees and as i mentioned you know about 75 of them are engineers and Uh, you know, they make all this happen. I just take credit for it. (laughs) Very good.
0: All right. So I want to get into the the competitive landscape. And now I, I don't want, we won't go through each line of the business because I'm sure each one has, quite a few competitors within that. But I guess from a from a public perspective, when you think about Richardson Electronics, do people put you on the same competitive sphere as other engineered solutions companies or other tubes companies? You know, how, how do folks tend to think about Richardson Electronics within within this ecosystem that we're in?
1: Well, I think that's part of the problem, particularly the financial world doesn't know what the hell we are. <laughs> we're in so many different businesses, they can't figure it out. Um, You know, it depends on what you're looking at. As far as the tube business and EDG, we have very little competition. It's only about a $400 million market and half of that's military, which we don't do much in. And the commercial market, which is the other half, we have $120 million of it. Uh, And we have very, very little competition in that business. On the other side of it, when you look at the display business, you know, all the, the companies like uh, Samsung and, and uh, Panasonic and LG, they all make displays. Where we fit is custom in small quantities, up to 2,000 or so, and very custom displays. But when it gets into a large quantity, these companies will set up to make those displays as well. So there's, you know, it's a huge market, but we just fit in a particular niche with medical OEMs. Uh, and we're sort of below the radar when there's less than 2,000 of a type um, built a year. Um, The other side, uh, EDG, as I mentioned, we have very little competition, but when you get into the PMG side, we also distribute um, components for people like Corvo and Macom and Fuji, and there's lots of competition there, Aero and Abnet, Future, they're huge distributors that are all in that business, Our claim to fame is engineered solutions. We're actually an extension of our customers' engineering departments. And we go in and help them design in the leading edge product for their circuits. And we get a premium for that. But it's still a very low margin business. That's the business I sold once before. But the fellow that ran it, Greg Pelequin, he went with Arrow for three years and then called me one day and said, you know, I really don't care for working for a $25 billion distributor. I'd like to come back. All the non-competes are up and so he came back and started over again and brought about 15 of his engineers with him so we're back in that business as well but that's how you get to meet these customers like next era you know they've all they're one of twenty thousand customers that have come to us for some special engineered solution and as i mentioned some of them are dead-end streets but this particular one with the wind turbines happened to be a home run
0: Let's talk about the moat a little bit for Richardson electronics. I mean, I don't get me wrong, I know tons of kids my age that grew up saying I can't wait to be in the tubes business. But <laughs> but you know, from <laughs> but from your from from your experience, I mean, it, it is it because the company's been around 75 years of experience. All these different engineered solutions, over twenty thousand customers. I mean, let's 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 get into it as to what people perceive to be that moat that why Richardson Electronics has some of the growth opportunities that we're also going to talk about after, after this question.
1: I think it's our engineering base that we've been, been built over the years, you know, and, and and our habit of never saying no. We always try to, um, you know, the title of my book is "Never Give Up." We we always try to uh, go in and see if we can't help them, and and that's why how we keep twenty thousand customers, and that's how we keep four hundred and fifty employees. Very good.
0: All right, so let's talk about the growth opportunities. You know, I went through your investor deck a little bit before our our conversation today, and it seems that within each segment, there's you know opportunities for growth. So, can we talk through some of those?
1: Sure. Well, the we're the one we're probably most excited about. I like we already talked about was wind turbines. And now anywhere that there's a UPS, an uninterrupted power supply, there's a lead acid battery behind it. And those only last about two years. They're very, um, you know, they don't handle temperature well, things of that nature where the ultra capacitor has a life of 10 to 15 years. Um, So, and we've gotten into uh, a partnership with a company called Battery Street. And these are fellows that had designed a... um, Uh, ultra-capacitor module to replace the UPS lead-acid batteries in cell towers. So you've got, in the United States, 300,000 cell towers. Um, And at the base of each one, there's a UPS and a ultra-capacitor module can replace it for about $500. So that's, uh, you know, so far we have them in beta sites with, is it Verizon? Uh, T-Mobile. T-Mobile and and Verizon and AT&T that we're working with. So we think that will be a good market. And then in the wind turbine market, so far we've only dealt with GE and they have 30,000 wind turbines in the United States, which, you know, we are just getting access to. But now Siemens has come to us and they're actually twice the size of GE. And so we're working on a design for them. Um, In this case, they want to buy it as a private label. They want us to label it Siemens. They want to handle their own OEM and aftermarket business, which is fine with us. Um, So that could even be bigger than GE. And then uh, even a larger manufacturer is called Vestas that makes wind turbines. Um, And we're talking to them as well. So we think that uh, that market has a huge future. And then we've gotten into um, a similar application, but in electric locomotives. So a a company called Progress Rail came to us a few years ago, and they're building locomotives in Brazil, primarily for the Australian market. And they had seen the uh, press releases on our ultra-capacitors that would replace lead-acid batteries and they were trying to replace lead acid batteries in their locomotives that they manufacture in Brazil. And our engineers looked at it and said the current's too low, that you can't really replace it with an ultracapacitor, but you could replace it with a lithium ion phosphate battery. And we have an agreement with Amalgreen technology in Korea, similar to what we have with LS materials for the ultracapacitor for those batteries, so they started designing the batteries in in their electric locomotives in brazil and uh the actually the, the fellow that's head of their supply chain um lives about five miles from our factory here in La Fox, and we told them you know it's 35 uh, 35 weeks delivery on those batteries you really ought to forecast how many you use a year and place a, a long-term order Uh, so that you guarantee the price and you can get delivery. Well, he gave us an $18 million order, the largest order in our history for those batteries uh, about three or four months ago. And those all go to Brazil, but now the American customers for electric locomotives, uh, they want the locomotives built in the United States. So Progress Rail is going to build their locomotives in Indiana. And they've come to us and asked us to build the battery compartment that they build in Brazil. So they've actually given us prints and we're copying what they do in Brazil. And now they've given us uh, beta site orders for four locomotives. And the battery compartment in each locomotive is a little over a million dollars. And they intend to build about 50 locomotives in the United States over about three-year period of time. And if we're successful with the first uh, four beta sites, uh, we should have access at about million a million dollars apiece to that business. Um, and Progress Rail is a division of Caterpillar. And to give you some idea, the battery compartment that we're going to build here is about four foot square by six foot high, and it has uh, um, lithium. Is very uh, sensitive to uh, fire control, they it, they can catch fire. So it has a a fire extinguishing system within it. And there are 162 of these battery modules in each compartment. And uh, all the, the cabling and, and the fire control systems, when we finish with it, it weighs 11,000 pounds. And we had to build a new shipping dock to handle this. So in my thinking in the not too distant future, caterpillar and progress rail are going to be our largest customer. So these are these are the kinds of things we're working on and you look at this people say well what the hell kind of business are you in you're in all these different businesses but that's what makes the company so predictable you know with 20,000 customers you can get a downturn in one business or another i look at it like a table with six legs you know and right now five of those legs are on fire so we're we're doing really well so my my next question, because you know I've
0: I've interviewed a few, um, not they not necessarily describe themselves as engineered solutions, but I guess it's more or less the same. at at various scales you know and one question i always have for them is you know how do they determine and and this question now i'm asking you is how do you determine what customer you want to work with you know is there a certain threshold do you do some due diligence on the industry that they're looking to sell whatever they're looking to partner with you want to build you know how do you determine what customers you do want to work with and others that you're saying "Eh, you know come back to us
1: well, you know, obviously we draw some parallels when we work with what, uh, one like GE wind turbines. The first thing we did then was to go to Siemens and now we're going to Vestas and we go to the other wind turbine manufacturers and operators as well. But to tell you the truth, it's not rocket science. The customers find us. You know, it's, it's we've been around for so long and we've developed a reputation for engineering. It's, it's their customers just coming to us.
0: I mean, is there anything too small that you'd say, ah, nah, we don't want to deal with that?
1: Oh, I I don't know. I think we're pretty stupid. We try anything. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the canvas business. Want be- yeah. In the, in the medical display business, if the quantities are too small and it's not a, you know, it's an off the shelf kind of uh, LCD, we wouldn't touch that either. So they have to be very custom.
0: Got it. Well, this is one of my favorite questions to ask on here. And I think this is a particular, uh, uh, it makes a lot of sense to ask you, what do you investors get most confused about when they think about Richardson Electronics? <laughs> Liz, I know you go to a lot of these conferences, you do a lot of the one-on-one. So, I mean, what what types of questions do you get asked most of the time? That you're because like, we're in
1: so many businesses, that it's hard for them to grasp what the company really does, you know? And and it takes uh, it, even with this interview. It's a very complicated story. Uh, we we're in so many different areas, and and that's the most difficult thing is trying to get a picture across to the customers. All they have to do is to look. That uh, last year we went from 176 million to 226 million, and our backlog went from 176 million to 206 million to see that we're doing something right. It took us 60 years to get here, but you don't have to understand all these various businesses to see that it's working and working pretty well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, what's so confusing about engineered solutions? There isn't. You know, know, I do have to ask, but because, you know, in engineered solutions, you mentioned that there's some certain aspects that are low margin parts of the business. I mean, is that the part where people get, you know, for, for, I, I'm sure you have some of those investor means that are like, all right, you know, okay, you make money. Oh, wow. one seven, two twenty, Great. But you know, you're making this much net income. Like, is that, do you, do you have that conversation quite a bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, they look at the business. I, I think probably the most critical area is, you know, it, as we said, we're still losing last year, about 5 million in the medical business. And they say, well, why, why do you stay in it? You know, either, either get rid of it or make it work. And, We think within the next couple of years, as we can, you know, as I mentioned, that we have a capacity to build a thousand tubes on three shifts, and these tubes sell for $75,000 a piece, by the way. Um, basically, and if we can build the volume up even to 500 tubes, we can start making money in that business. Um, and if that happens, then you can add another five million to the bottom line,
0: absolutely. This is a kind of random question. I don't know if you've ever been asked this before, but have you ever thought about spinning out some of the businesses or one of them?
1: Oh, sure. You know, I sold RF, We sold RFPD. Wendy came on board. We had a security systems division that had come from um, camera tubes and monitor tubes that we built into security systems that customers wanted to buy. And we sold that business to Honeywell for $75 million in 2007. Yes. And then uh, we sold the uh, commodity semiconductor business to Arrow for $238 million in uh, 2011. Uh, we went at one time, this company was $700 million in revenue and losing money, hand over fist. And we had $200 million of the debt. Um, and so we sold off these businesses, paid off all our debt. And basically, we were down about $140 million in sales. Um, and still had 20,000 customers all over the world. And we started adding all of these new products to fully absorb that infrastructure. And at 160 million, we broke even. At 176 million, we started making money. And this year at 226, we made $15 million, $16 million, even though medical lost $5 million. Gotcha. So, what would you say are also going back to the growth opportunities? What would you say are some
0: of the tailwinds that are driving some of the growth opportunities that you're seeing?
1: Well, it's, you know, green energy. Um, if you look at the the bill that's just gone through Congress and they're subsidizing all these uh, wind turbines and solar fields and, um, you know, the big push to get off of fossil fuel. Um, and I think that's the most exciting portion of our business. And we're, we're just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we're just, right now, we've sold 22,000, of the ultra capacitor modules for wind turbines but the the total market there are 30,000 GE wind turbines in the United States and Siemens and Vestas have five times the market that GE does you know and we're just starting in that business so it's an amazing opportunity very cool so i
0: I ask this question as well on every interview, you know, we're talking about the growth and some of the exciting things going on in the business, but we also want to get the other side. So in your opinion, what would you say are some of the company's downside risks?
1: Well, the biggest one we have, as I mentioned, our largest customer uh, at the moment is Lamb Research. And, you know, we've sold Lamb clear back to when Nobelis, uh, they bought Novellus, by the way. So clear back in the, Early 2000s, we were in that business building RF matches and other equipment for semiconductor wafer fab. And every time you went from 3G to 4G, that business would go go up and then it'd go off a cliff. Um, And right now, because of the shortages on integrated circuits around the world, um, our business um, with LAM has gone from 22 million to 27 million at the rate we're on. It'll probably be 35 million this year. But we also know that can go in 20, was it 2018, 2019. It went yep. from 22 million to 7 million overnight. Um, Fortunately, you know, you make, hey, uh, well, the sun's up and the business is there right now. But we also know that's a really secular business. But the other businesses are so stable, like the two businesses, incredible uh, customers all over the world, they make up for it. But if if there's any any area that could really fall off the cliff, it's that business.
0: Where do you see the company in three to five years, and what would you say are there are the inflection points that will get you there?
1: Well, I think that we'll continue to grow with all the uh, you know the backlog we have. As I mentioned, uh, that it, we went into this quarter with a two hundred six million dollar backlog. Um, I think we'll grow at about fifteen possibly 20% a year. And if you just run the numbers five years out, that'll be $450, $500 million. And if you look, if we can get healthcare to be a contributor to that, you know, we'll be very profitable.
0: On the healthcare side, I mean, what, what are some of the things that will help get everything over the hump? You know, as well, if
1: we can develop these Siemens tubes, um, Siemens is 10 times the size of Toshiba in the market. And their tubes, uh, if you don't have uh, their equipment on contract and you want to buy uh, a Siemens CT tube, they charge over $200,000 for them. So we think that there's a real opportunity there as we can develop uh, replacements for those tubes.
0: Got it. All right, I only got a couple more questions for you to here today. Um, so, like I said, you've been going to all these conferences. You're doing all the one on ones and everything. You know, you've had lots of conversations with many folks that I know in the business that that I that I truly respect in cap, You know, how much, if at all, have your shareholders influenced your decision making process, if at all?
1: Well, you know, they obviously they wanted us to buy stock back, and we did. At the time, we bought sixty five million dollars of the stock back. And at the time, I thought we paid too much for it. We probably blended and paid about $9. But with the stock being $17 today, it doesn't look too bad. Um, But, you know, we try, uh, if we can, to um, disclose as much of the information as we can so they uh, can make uh, intelligent investments. And um, even though it's a complicated story, there's so many growth areas within the company that Um, as I mentioned, it's taken us 60 years to get it right, but we've never seen an opportunity uh, like it has today.
0: Very good. All right. So, uh, one of my last questions for you today to close this out, the company has been public for well over 30 years. Um, you've been in the company for about 60 years. How has your thought process about being a part of management of a public company? How has that changed over time?
1: Well, I can honestly tell you, there was a period of time when the stock was done at four or five dollars that we looked at going private. And the only problem with that was the only way you could do it was, in you know, some kind of a venture capital fund to come in and then you were no longer your own boss. Um, so we just stayed with it. Today, I'm quite happy to be public. It's um, it's really uh, refreshing to have a seventeen dollar stock.
0: <laughs> for sure. Um, all right. So my final question for you, you know, you have a book coming out about the 75 years of Richardson Electronics. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to write a book about the company's history?
1: <laughs> well, it was our 75th anniversary, and, and we just really wanted to tell the whole story of the company and the people in it that have built it and made it successful. Um, and there have been a lot of tough years, and it makes a, a really good story. The title of the book is called Never Give Up so we'll send you a copy.
0: Oh, absolutely. So I'm guessing the longest chapters are going to be explaining each segment of the business, right? Of course. Well, it's
1: a story of the family and, you know, some of of the story I went through and and some of the hard times we went through and some of the fun times we went through. and, And we tried to recognize all the people that have been here. We have lots of people that have been here 25, 30 years, you know, that have really been instrumental in helping us get where we are today.
0: You know, one last question for you, I have to ask, you know, you're an American company, you know, a lot more companies within the US want to stay domestic. I mean, has that been a tailwind for Richardson in that they say, hey, you know what, I want to work with the best two, you know, the best uh, 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 engineered solutions company in the US. I don't want to farm it out. Has that been something that's been coming up quite often?
1: Well, not too much. You know, as I mentioned, 60% of our business is outside the United States. So we do a lot of business in the United States. And now with the wind turbine business and Progress Rail, we're probably going to go more towards, you know, 50% each uh, international and domestic. Or maybe in the future, it might even be more domestic, but we'll have to see. Progress Rail in particular, that's what they're doing with the rail cars here. They move those here. They want to make them in the States. Right. Yeah. Progress Rail is moving the... manufacturing back to the United States because the the U.S. railroads want U.S.-made locomotives. And that, that business could be huge. It's just amazing.
0: And semiconductor development in the United States could grow that business
1: too. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there's a real push to bring semiconductor wafer fab back to the United States as well. That's in some of the, the house bills that are they're coming down, subsidies to build semiconductor wafer fab in the United States.
0: Very good. All right, I think I think we covered quite a bit today. Um, so I want to close off by saying congratulations on 75 years to another 75 more. I can't wait to read the book. And where where can our audience go and find more information on Richardson Electronics?
1: Well, we you know have a website. There's a lot of information out there, and the easiest thing to do is call us. You know, we're a very flat organization. There's about five of us that run the company, and we're happy to talk to you anytime.
0: Perfect. And I I also would like to thank Wendy Diddle, uh, uh, COO of Richardson Electronics back there with giving us a lot of good insight as well. And Ed, Wendy, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. And, uh, And I look forward to our next update.
1: Thanks, Robert. It's been good.